So it's 2023. It is a time where we're all exhausted. We've persisted. We're still (laughs) dealing with hairy pandemic times and things are going to get worse because of the climate crisis. So it's a great time to really step back and reflect. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, We talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, Wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today we are talking about stress, which I know it's like something that some people experience. And I really, you know, it's so sad. I've never really had that experience in my life of having stress. Ha 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 ha. No, we've all had stress. We all experience it on a regular basis. And Dr. Alyssa Eppel is here with some actual tactical tips for how to address it. She is the author of the new book, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. And she is a leading expert in the field of stress and biological aging, which go hand in hand, as you may or may not assume. And she's really terrific because she actually has some real tactical strategies here. It's not just kind of broad sweeping recommendations that don't really feel like you can apply anything to your life. And over here at Highway to Well, we really do like it when people actually give us proper tools and guidance and not just, you know, broad sweeping kind of judgy gestures that don't actually do anything and don't actually work. So anyway, please enjoy Dr. Alyssa Eppel. And thanks again for listening. Hey, co-founders of Earth and Star here. Real quick, what if we told you that your morning cup of coffee could deliver powerful immune support, keep dementia at bay, and help you sleep like a baby? Or that you could improve your gut health and reduce inflammation with a delicious daily gummy? You'd probably say we're full of shiitake. Mm-hmm. Well, it can. And as it turns out, all of these powerful health benefits are hiding right under our feet, literally, in the form of functional mushrooms, sometimes referred to as adaptogens. Adaptogens, they are fancy plants and fungi chock full of science-backed benefits to help your body restore, defend, and perform every single day. Earth and Star is our line of super premium adaptogen-infused goodies. Goodies, what do we got? We've got organic Mm. ground coffee in Mm. dark roast, hazelnut, even decaf for people like me. Um, And they're all boosted with a powerful dose of adaptogen extracts to give you the most delicious morning brew with zero crash, zero jitters, zero, zero for real. Mm, Talk to me. I like it. But is it actual coffee or that weird muddy tasting coffee replacement that you have to like mix and froth and then convince yourself it tastes good? Tastes good and not like mud, you mean? No, no, because it's actual coffee. We just added in the extracts. So you get extracts for powerful focus, sustained energy, no anxiety, no big whoop. And if that's not your thing, we've also got dark chocolate bars. I mean, fun. They're organic, 72% cacao with delicious flavors like mint, orange, sea salt, and all with no weird crap or additives. Most likely you have a daily chocolate habit anyway. So why not make it super delicious and functional while you're at it? Mm-hmm. 
And what's that? You still need an easier way to make this adaptogen habit stick? I see what you did there. I see done, what done. I know. Here's what I did. We've got gummies too. Get it? They stick. Um, nice. And we managed to pack a therapeutic dose into just two little vegan gummies. Two, two, not not four or six because come on, people, no grown ass adult needs six gummies a day. <laughs> but if you do, no judgments. No judgments. And no, Earth and Star products do not taste like mushrooms. We will legit give you your money back if you taste even the slightest hint of shroominess. Our products are just like the ones you are already consuming regularly. Real coffee, real chocolate, etc. They are just boosted with functionality to help you adapt every day. Adapt every day with all the stuff that comes our way. Oh my God, I just did a rhyme. That was good. Um, that was pretty good. Uh, so check us out at earthandstar.com and or follow us at earthandstarco. And if you want 15% off, you can use the code HTW on your first order. Do, do, do. Officially, we will welcome you, Dr. Alyssa Appel. Appel? Apple. 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 We are so excited to talk about your book, which is seven, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease, which we can always use a little bit more of, maybe a lot more of. Can you tell us a bit about the book and the work that you do and why you felt compelled to get started with this book right now? Sure. I have been studying stress and its effects on health for almost 30 years. And I would say the first 10 years was spent documenting the, the dark side of stress and trauma and how it affects and promotes depression and accelerated cellular aging in any way we can measure it. I particularly focused on a cell aging measure called telomeres. And I wrote a book on them and how they're related to health and stress with my colleague, Elizabeth Blackburn, the Nobel laureate who helped discover and understand the telomere aging mechanism in our bodies. And I would say maybe 10 years into this work and experiencing chronic stress, you know, child raising, caregiving, and bad prioritization of time, work over sleep, things like that. I then started studying meditation and retreats and then emotional well-being. So really the positive side of mental health, feelings of joy, purpose, satisfaction, and uh, really aspects of our well-being, like spirituality that we don't typically study. Those are all fascinating to me now because they're, they are directly related to health and longevity, many of them. So along the way in this process, I have become very interested in, of course, interventions, yoga, meditation, exercise, those are gold. And we know how those help us. But I've become very interested in the short interventions, the nudges, the thin slice in the moment things that we can do or say to ourselves that can change our state, can change our mind-body state and lead to lower stress. So I've really scoured the literature for experiments that maybe the public doesn't even know about that show how we can rethink a stressful situation or change our mindset um, and other ways to reduce anxiety in a, in a fast way within our day. So that's what the book is about, really easy 
implementable strategies that have some science behind them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, stress is like, oh God, who knew we could talk about stress this much? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been like, I mean, we're on the heel. I mean, not, it's just turned 2023, right? We're out of the pandemic, sort of, we're done, kind of, Maybe. I don't jinx it. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's been such a topic and even before the pandemic and it's always been framed in, you know, such a negative light, which seems very natural and obvious, right? Like stress is causes X, Y, and Z. And all of these things happen if you stress out and these are all the causes of stress and here's how you can change it. But you, you, you talk about how stress is good for you as well. Right. And that's probably point number one. Whenever we talk about stress, we should really distinguish between, are we talking about chronic stress, toxic stress, and trauma reactions? Or are we talking about the daily stressful events that we get over pretty quickly. And so acute stress can be really positive. We can approach short-term stressors with a positive stress mindset that actually influences the stress response to be more adaptive and more helpful. And that's actually better for our body. We recover more quickly. And then there's also a whole section on what about positive stresses to our body those are underutilized. We think of exercise, one of those, but there's a whole range of things we can do to stress out our body in a short, brief way, repeatedly, that promotes stress resilience or what I call stress fitness. And I also think of this as helping us deal with the, prob- the evolutionary problem we have, which is that we've inherited a body that when we are, when our stress response is triggered, which is often, we mobilize lots of stress hormones and glucose because of course we think we need to run from a stressor. How do we burn up all of that extra energy so that it's not lingering around and creating pre-diabetes and making us fatigue, taking up so much of our energy and taxing our mitochondria? We can do that through these short-term stressors to our body like HIT, like hyperthermia, and maybe even cold exposure or cold showers. So those brief stressors can be rejuvenating and can reduce stress in the body. I'm curious why you say maybe cold exposure as opposed to definitely, just because... Yeah, well, I will say that I view them as equally important. And I also think, you know, people who have spent any time in like Korean baths or any traditional spas, there's hot and cold and we go back and forth. And that's like the best workout for our nervous system and our vagal tone is that range of experiences and that quick adaptation. So I think both are important just in terms of the research so far. I would say that there's a lot more done on sauna and hyperthermia and health. That's a pretty strong literature and less on cold exposure. But there are studies, for example, showing that cryotherapy can help with depression. Yeah, I tried that once. It uh, the cryo. <laughs> I don't know. I felt it was not my cup of tea. Although I do like, I like the extreme hot and cold, for sure. I like alternating. I like the cryo experience only because it's brief. I mean, that's the only way that I can really find my, you know, resilience to get through it. Is like watching that clock tick down and knowing that it's like 90 seconds away. But otherwise, I, I mean, hate being cold always, always, always. But that's mm-hmm. like one of I can't so what, do you, what are your go-to ways of 
let's say, reducing stress in the moment. I mean, a nice Barolo. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like honestly, and so it was many. it's a it's a question that I was going to ask later, but we can talk about it now, and, and maybe you know, kind of use some more examples of, of what you've written, but. I, I I like that you're, you know, that the angle here has more to do with what's happening in the moment than, you know, kind of the the overarching, like longer, you know, longer game. You know, yoga is great, but you're in a yoga class for 60 minutes. And I don't understand, I, I don't, I don't know you can make the argument that that yoga class for 60 minutes on Tuesday morning is definitely gonna help your, you know, managing your stress on Thursday afternoon. But that being said, I feel like, you know, this is something, this is definitely a topic that, you know, on a personal level, I've certainly been very, very much of a, of a seeker. And then just in the work that we do and in the conversations we have, of course, you know, we're always looking for, you know, what, what the new opportunity is. And so, yeah, between, you know, box breathing and maybe like a walking meditation or something quick and, you know, silent or, you know, vibrations. We both have these like Apollo wristbands. <laughs> so speaking of right. the, the nerve, are you, are you familiar <laughs> with these? Oh, I've been told many times I should buy one. What do you think? <laughs> They're great. I have to say it is like a, um, it's, I mean, they, they say it, I think, uh, in a way that everyone best understands as a hug for your nervous system, um, which it feels, I actually put it on my kid last night when he was nauseous and throwing up, but I don't think it's it kind of like having a, like, it's kind of like having a cat purring on you at all times mm-hmm. when you're wearing it, which, you know, some people find relaxing. Other people get triggered by I cats, don't, I'm but, not, I'm not into a cat. Um, but my, I guess for me, my question is like, I, I don't know that those things really actually help. And so what do you do when you're in that situation? And again, we can come back to that because I know that there's a long list of things. Well, let's just, let's get into it because we're in it. We're in it. We're in it now. And I think it it helps me. I think, no, but I think it's interesting because you started to touch on earlier, just sort of the, the, you know, kind of the self-talk and the maybe less physical things that you can do to relieve stress. Um, and, and maybe just how you're framing things in the moment, you know, in your mind. Um, one, Thanks, Oprah. One mantra that I've used for like years now, which I think is so helpful in stressful moments to put things in perspective. Um, this is my sort of like trick to snap out of a downward spiral sometimes is just how much does this matter in five minutes? How much does it matter in five months? And how much does it matter in five years? And that really snap. I mean, I don't know if these are the types of things that maybe you're about to touch on, but that is one sort of mental cue for me that typically works um, mm-hmm. and pretty immediately puts puts things in perspective that, you know, maybe, maybe I'm overreacting, maybe I'm not taking a longer view. You know, it just, I find that that one pretty helpful, but I'm wondering if you have any others like that or any other techniques that, that help. Well, that's one of my favorites. I love perspective taking. I think it's one of the more powerful things we can do, especially when people internalize the long view. And then they have this robustness that the little things don't stress them out as much. That happens with age. A lot of older people, not everyone, but on average, they have this amazing ability to not sweat the small things and to have this long view because they've seen so much and endured so much and have seen even society get over existential crises. show tremendous resilience. And all of the data shows that both with depression and anxiety, pandemic stress, and even just a recent stress survey. For example, women 
young adult women have overwhelming levels of stress in the 60 percentile, very high. We really, the, the, you know, the burden of what's happening on the world really is falling on youth and young adults. Whereas women over 65, I think it's less than 10% feel overwhelming stress. So there is this robustness. We, we often focus, oh, there's this mental health epidemic and, and you know, our youth are so vulnerable, vulnerable, they turn to despair so easily. But another question and way to frame it is what can we learn from the way that the wise elders are seeing things, their mindset? So the on one hand, they're doing perspective taking. And on another hand, they are viewing time differently. So for example, they realize life left is short and realizing for all of us, since we don't know how long our lives are, realizing how fast life really goes by and the fragility, that shifts things. And when we realize that we don't want to take up our mental landscape or our day with things that we can't change or the little things that can just fill our mind because that's how our mind works, ruminating about things that didn't go as well. So that is a something called spiritual urgency when we feel mm. that life is precious and we need to live today how we want to. We need to ask, you know, it's a, it's a reflection, stepping back and really seeing what's most important to me. What is it about people I want to spend time with, the things that I want to accomplish, and just making sure our day is aligned with that, at least a little bit, touching on what's most important to us. Yeah, that's interesting. It is um, spiritual urgency. That's a good one. Um, And, and, you know, nothing puts uh, things in perspective faster than, you know, or sort of presents mortality or own death, like faster than the death of a loved one or having children, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. somewhat, this is a slight left turn, but it's kind of interesting and somewhat related. And I found it fascinating. Um, I feel like we were talking to, what's that therapist's name? The relationship therapist. Anyway, a friend who, uh, a couple that I know of, one of the partners stepped out of the marriage and it was after the death of a parent. And it was just this sort of like, I mean, really went for it. It was just pretty aggressive behavior. And, you know, the aftermath and therapy was, it was sort of discovered or maybe a finger was pointed towards that, that death of, of the parent and sort of putting this person's life in perspective and sort of acting out in these ways, like, oh shit, like this is not going to last long. Like, what am I doing? Like stuck in this relationship? Like, why am I not experiencing all the things and all the people? And it was, it was, um, kind of a crazy connection to make for me, but it made sense the more it sort of was, you know, unfolded. Mm-hmm. I don't That's know. That's a great example. It is often those big loss events or threat events like developing a, a chronic or fatal disease that cause us to make those shifts or facing the end of life when we're older. But why wait? How can we grasp those insights now and use that wisdom rather than just going on autopilot every day and making it such a grind, right? Just the high daily stress, just to get by and use our time well and achieve everything on our list. That just fills up everything. So it's 2023. It is a time where we're all exhausted. We've persisted. We're still (laughs) dealing with 
hairy pandemic times. And things are going to get worse because of the climate crisis. So it's a great time to really step back and reflect. And that's what chapter two is about, is the stress assessment, looking at our time use, looking at our priorities, starting from death, starting, you know, reverse engineering Mm -hmm. how we want to spend our time. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there is any, like, is there anybody who is not prone to stress? Is there anyone who just kind of handles it and it's water off a duck's back? It just feels like it, it's, it's just, it's almost like an overused concept because we all experience it all the time. But to, so then that makes me wonder, like, is that just our default state or yeah, just, yeah. are there people and communities and cultures that just don't have that type of experience? Mm, such a good question. Okay. So I always, I always start from data and then I'll, I'll tell you what I really think. Like the data shows we are becoming more stressed. We have more stressful daily events in our lives. We react to them more. We're more reactive than we were 10 or 20 years ago. This is like gorgeous daily diary data from my colleague, Dave Almeida. So we know that times are getting more stressful and we can point to some things, um, trends that, you know, how technology has isolated us and separated us and bombarded us with information that hasn't been good for our emotional well-being. And then there's this idea of, as you said, looking for the, what we call the off-diagonals, the rare examples of who's not stressed. 46% of Americans feel extremely stressed or overwhelmed by stress. So yes, the majority of us are way off the scale. And then you look at women and uh, targeted groups, uh, people of color and the stress levels are way higher. And that, you know, that has to do with everything, structural racism, discrimination, social roles, like women who have young children, and then soon they're taking care of parents. I mean, this is just a stage of life that is the most stressful. Things get better. Happiness goes up, stress goes down with the, with, you know, the older years with a kind of over 60. <laughs> Not that we should wait. You're like, man. once your parents are dead and your kids are grown. <laughs> I mean, let's just say, let's just call it what it is. And you're yeah. finally. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so let's not, right. Let's not go with that default. Let's, let's work, <laughs> work to, to live better with it all. Um, so people who are not really stressed, not many in our culture, there are people who don't, aren't aware of stress. The best way to figure out, especially for men, like do I have a lot of stress? Do I need to reflect and make some changes? Is to ask people around them, ask their partner, ask their colleagues, because we can often see it in, in other people easily when they can't see it. Hmm. There are truly people who are more stress resilient. It's partly temperament, partly life experience and resources. I mean, let's face it, privilege comes with so many more resources to deal with stress, money, social support, being able to change things that aren't easily changeable with resources. There are societies like Okinawa and those blue zones. And when you look at the culture in those blue zones, it's pretty idyllic. There there are low stress levels and the social fabric is, you know, is crazily cohesive. Everyone knows each other. They're walking everywhere. You know, they're active, they're eating this healthy diet, but socially they're, they're not living this high paced lifestyle screens. It's just like the opposite. Yeah. My, um, I, cause I have to, I tout this Don't every get time. We started on Don't the get me started on the blue zone. My dad is from, so my dad's from a blue zone. 
uh, one of the blue, what are there eight? Um, he is from Greece and, uh, you know, they all live, all of the Greek relatives live in New Jersey together and they live like within, you know, five miles of each other. They all live forever. They go to Greece every summer and they go to, you know, New Jersey, but it's funny because all they do all day is drive to each other's houses and hang out and talk and then go pick someone else up and then drive that person to the other house. That's it every day. It's all they do. That's it. And, you know, and and, And that's important, right? They're they're taking care of people. Yeah. You don't leave the house. I mean, they're very Americanized, obviously, but they, uh, you know, you really don't even leave the house until you're like getting married. You know, the grand, it's very multi-generational, right? And um, I think that is obvious. That's a very obvious connection for me to see firsthand that connection to longevity and the other one is social media right i mean they're just like not they're like what what a waste of time um so not connected to it well let's i mean i love that you said nothing helps we're just all high stress (laughs) i just love that like let's let's challenge that and you know think about like what everyone there are different types of stress and so just sorting things into, okay, this is a situation I can't control, this I can, and this is like the gray area. Some of it I can, some of it I can't. Just taking inventory is really important because you don't want to waste your stress response and your problem solving on the big things that we can't change. You really want to focus on what about this can I change? So thinking about the situations is one part of the stress inventory. And another is thinking about when do you feel most stressed out? And what is it that stresses you out? Because there are different strategies for different types of stress. So if you're stressed about stress, like you hate feeling stressed, there are there are practices for that. Or if you are suffering from, and this is very common, from feeling self-critical, having that inner critic kind of ruin your day and you know tell you things that stick with you, and keep the chronic stress response going. That's very com- very common. So self-compassion strategies are incredibly important there. And there's imposterism. And lots of people have that. The most high achieving people still have that. Oh yeah, I'm a total failure. Yeah. I don't know if you know that. We <laughs> achieved nothing. Um, so in in light of that, I mean, and and I don't know, maybe it's a separate question, but you tell me what what is the difference between stress and anxiety or what is the relationship between stress and anxiety and can one exist without the other? And can, I mean, are, how, how do we, how do we parse these things? Mm-hmm. Okay. So stress is technically about stressors like situations or things or exposures that's, that stresses out. So it could be caregiving, work stress, arguments, um, financial stress, like anything that is external to us in our mind. Some people don't find the same situations stressful, but most of us can agree on stressors. Then there's the stress response. And that is how much do we feel threatened by this? How much do we feel we can cope with it? And those are the only things, often those are the things that we control is our response and not um, working to not overreact to stressors, to things that happen that we don't want or that surprise us or traumatic events. So uh, addressing our reaction to stress is part of 
chapter three, this kind of stress mindset. How can we actually approach stressful situations with a positive mindset, both about beliefs about acute stress, how it's good for us, how it can energize us, and how recognizing that can actually feed forward and deterministically create more of a energized, positive stress response that peaks and then shuts off quickly rather than that threat response, which is really exhausting. The high cortisol sticks around. Um, We all know what it's like to go through an emotionally exhausting stressor. So there are stress shield statements or empowering statements that we need one. We need two. We need to carry them around and use them. And you probably use them naturally and you don't notice them. Um, like, well, you mentioned the, this too will pass. Is this really going to affect me in a year? So those distancing things are good. Those tend to help even more afterward, (laughs) after something bad has happened to help us Mm -hmm. loosen up our grip on thinking about it and still carrying the feelings of it. Some of it just sounds like completely suspending. Like I was just having a conversation with my um, husband about this, which was the context was, you know, strategy around sort of poorly behaved kids or like, you know, when they freak out or do something crazy that is like super stressful and you're in this situation where you're like about to lose it on them or whoever. Uh, He's just like recently adopted this non-reactive kind of stoic approach that is, I find totally infuriating and and passive and passive. And because ultimately, if we're all together, it puts the, it by default, then I have have to to do something, which is not Mm -hmm. cool. But I get, we, I kind of go back and forth. I'm like, I don't know how much this is working for you or us collectively, but I'm pretty sure at the end of the situation or the stressor, you feel better than I do. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, it seems like I'm not actually parenting if I'm not reacting. I'm not responding to the, you know, whether it's some kind of um, correction that needs to happen or whatever. Uh, But I don't know. It's very confusing. In some ways, it feels passive and it feels like just sort of like uh, you have to forcefully like lie to yourself about a situation in order to maintain this sort of calm, non-reactive state. And that really, I find just completely confusing. I don't understand how people do it. They do it. They trick their brains. They do it. They tell themselves whatever they need to tell themselves. But I have a lot of trouble sort of, you know, with the stoicism, with the just not reacting, being like, okay, I'm not going to, I can't control the situation, but I can control my reaction. Mm -hmm. My reaction is going to be calm. I mean, easier said than done, right? Like, what do you do? Well, I love your example because it is dyadic. It is a partner. It is a family system. And so if he's going to withdraw, um, it does leave more burden on you to be frontline coping, right? So maybe sometimes he can be addressing it and, and being the one who's helping with emotion regulation for your child. And so you can practice observing, watching, and not having catastrophic thoughts about his coping with it. So there's a, there's definitely a family system there where you might trade roles sometimes if he's, Mm -hmm. if he's willing to, but I would say that no one is really, um, 
this idea of not reacting is kind of false. Like we have the automatic reaction and some of us are wired to have a huge automatic reaction and we can't control that. It's what happens next, what we're saying to ourselves. So when you were saying, um, just, you know, I can't help feeling this way. I would, I would ask what are, can you identify some of the thoughts behind it? Are, do you feel like if you don't, you know, act immediately or do this or that terrible things will happen, et cetera. And sometimes they will. I mean, it depends on the kid and their temperament and how impulsive and risky they are. So like it, it, there's no one answer for the kid trauma. I mean, sorry, the kid tantrum or the kid mm-hmm. upset. It really is um, dependent on the kid. But in general, think of yourself as someone who can help hold the emotions of the child while being a, a calm presence, someone who's listening, someone who's asking them reflective questions and not adding to the statements of do this or that, or, you know, this is wrong. So it's really becoming a receptacle, an interactive receptacle. And one way to think about that is being, is this doesn't always work for kids. This more works for when we're caring about adults who are not taking care of themselves or, you know, having addiction. But the idea of loving detachment of I'm here for you, I'm present and I'm listening, but you're not, you're not taking on the idea that I can solve everything. I control the outcomes here. I can make you behave a different way. Advice for all of us. I, I know. <laughs> it, yeah, it is um, bigs and littles for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to tell him that you said the word withdraw, not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, wait, on that subject, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but something that we've both had uh, have previous experience with or fascination with is speaking of children, this idea, and I know you've done some of these studies specifically, but um, how stress gets passed um, to the fetus. Mm. Ah, yeah. I love this subject. We were, we, we, in a different world, a different time, um, spent uh, a lot of time on the subject and, and loved that book. Um, I think it was called Prenatal Prescription. Mm-hmm. Oh, but anyway, yeah, I'm so fascinated, fascinated to hear what your studies revealed on this. Well, I'm happy to hear you want to hear about them because I think on one hand, they're really scary and threatening for moms to hear about and people who are still going to get pregnant, right? It's like, oh my goodness, so much responsibility on me. Um, But the reality is we've always had, there's just this phenomenal, beautiful evolutionary dependency that where the fetus is developing based on that prenatal environment and reading the signals. So we've always known that when the mom is going through huge stressors like famine, the Dutch famine or um, other uh, psychological major stressors like loss, bereavement during pregnancy, these are related to different birth outcomes to more catch up weight gain or weight gain, um, low birth, often low birth weight and then than rapid weight gain and uh, possibly more adult de- disease in adulthood. We've been studying this in terms of looking at the telomeres and the epigenetic clocks in the baby. So these are just ways in looking at the baby's blood and saying, has the baby been, does it look like they have a more accelerated cellular aging profile? 
And our studies and others have found that pregnancy stress is indeed related to more worse outcomes in the baby in terms of their cell aging, their telomere length. We don't know if it's exactly causal. We, we're, you know, we're basically looking at families and intergenerational transmission. A lot is transmitted, environment and genetics, but it does look like pregnancy stress is so important for both the mom's health and the baby's health. And so in our last study, and I'm going to focus on this because it's the most helpful, we used a mindful eating and a mindful stress reduction training for women during their um, second trimester of their pregnancy. And in that study, like no brainer, but the moms at, at the end of eight weeks had much less stress and depression. I mean, that's what we expected. We were, they were getting a lot of support from each other and from the, the teacher and the skills. But then we followed them. My colleague, Nikki Bush, followed the moms for eight years. And we just published the paper showing that the moms who learned some of these mindful stress management strategies during pregnancy had lower depression almost every year for eight years, even during the pandemic. Everyone peaked a little bit in depression, but they still looked more resilient. And the babies had more resilient temperaments. Their nervous systems didn't respond to um, the stranger separation paradigm, which is like a little baby stressor, lab stressor that researchers use. They responded in a more healthy way. So I guess the bottom line is, yes, pregnancy stress is really important. We absolutely need to think about making structural changes, both in the family and in society, to protect pregnant women from the big things, from foods, uh, food insecurity, from violence, interpersonal violence. Um, but just greater emotional support, period, for all pregnant women is so critical. So the mindfulness class was, it worked, but so would other things, maybe a prenatal yoga class where it's a group experience. Um, but it's the, I do think that that was an example of skills that you learn about how the mind works and how to view thoughts that was sticky, that stuck with them or some of them for the long run. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it shouldn't be any surprise, right? Obviously, you know, the fetus is going to sort of be imprinted by whatever is going on with the with their house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, it's it's sensitive know, to it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, do you have any information uh, how we compare uh, in this country to other countries. I was just thinking about how pregnant women are treated in, in, I mean, first world countries, but you know, in Europe, I feel like they have a much better experience all around and feel more supported all around than than. Oh, no question. Oh yeah. my goodness, we're just one of the worst. I think it's the Netherlands. They have like a one year postpartum break, and it's just so wise. It makes so much sense. And we have, you know, the least time, paid time off. Oh, that's so fascinating. We missed the boat on that one. Yeah. We had to get it back. Yeah, we all did. I know. <laughs> all this pregnancy research, though, is really, it's compelling. And like, how do we actually make changes and use it to help change policy? That's where the, that's where the huge gaps are. Like researchers like me don't know how to bridge that. Yeah. It sounds very complicated, for sure. I guess one, I mean, did you have another question? No. I have one just random question is just what, I mean, when I think about all those typical stressors and what we commonly think of, is there one in particular that 
was like the most surprising to you that most people don't maybe connect with stress? Hmm. Or as a cause of stress? Just surprised. I'm just curious about that. Jumped yeah. out. I think it's easy to say that the the most common type of stress for people is social stress, interpersonal stress, not necessarily work stress. And when we look at what predicts depression, it is my colleague George Slavich has has shown this in many studies. It's interpersonal rejection. Rejection is so painful. And when we look at predictors of depression, it's predicts depression eightfold more than other types of stressors. So it's like loss when, you know, if, if you broke up or sorry, if someone broke up with you versus you breaking up with someone else, if you're the one who was broken up with or divorced, that leads to that greater risk, that eightfold risk of depression. So these are, you know, we are social beings. And when we feel rejected from a person or a group, that feels like a threat to our survival mm-hmm. because of our the way our brain works. It really views social support as critical to our survival. Oh, that's surprising. I didn't think I didn't think that would be the number one, but it makes sense. Yeah, get kicked out of the tribe, you're dead. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's a quicker way of saying what I just said. <laughs> but it's um, yeah, but it's I mean it's one uh, it's the most relevant for depression. But in terms of, you know, other other types of stressors compare, I feel like, I mean, the daily, the book is really focused on daily stress. How can we bring down our elevated nervous, vigilant nervous system levels and our elevated feelings of stress in a daily basis? Because that's what turns into chronic stress. And that is manageable. We can actually make small shifts in our daily stress. And so that is a focus that we can all do now. So I'm, you know, I'm excited about that. I think the field is moving toward these smaller, shorter practices. One thing we all, I want to say we all have in common, but when we do these daily diary studies and we say, well, what's the most common stressor? It really is how we set up our day. It's rushing. It's being late. It's having too much to do and not getting the list done. And that's on us. You know, that's what we all do together. And we think it's cool and acceptable, but it's pretty, it's, it's pretty much a lower quality life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's you no badge of honor. Set yourself up for disappointment and self, you know, self-loathing with the more that you add to your to your plate and then the more yeah, that you actually achieve. That's right. And then there's no spaciousness. There's no breaks to actually even see that we're stuck in this kind of autopilot lifestyle. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, we know you have to wrap up and this has been a really great kind of primer on all of this. And obviously the book really does. I mean, we've talked about a lot of themes here and I I know that the book really does focus on kind of really distilling it down so that we're talking about tactics that are employable that will actually help you reach results within a very short period of time. So um, we will encourage everybody to check out the stress prescription. Thank you so much. And let me know how it goes with, uh, you know, child behavior thing issues but those are str- those are like completely we we all know what that's like and we all need more strategies and support so yeah yeah for sure i'll send you a video memo and you can <laughs> judge <laughs> well thank you so much i feel less stressed already i feel like i've got a little tool my little toolkit here Awesome. You you two can be breathing partners or choose one strategy in the book to do together. Yeah, we do trust falls all the time. <laughs> oh, lovely. <Still> accepted. 
<laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. You okay, too. you too. Bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Give us a couple of stars. Give us five whole stars. They don't cost you anything. And you can find out more information on our website at htwpodcast.com. And you can follow us on social at Earth and Star, which is at Earth and Star Co. Thanks so much.